In order to truly become part of the global business environment, your business needs to constantly change and adapt to a variety of new constants. Welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders with Kimberly J. Lewis. We will help you navigate these changes on today's program and help you think beyond the boundaries. The opportunities are limitless if you are prepared. Now, here is your host, Kimberly J. Lewis. Hello, and welcome to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And this series is in cooperation with Ascenda Virtual, which brings you thought leaders and business stories from all over the world. Now, you can learn more about Cinda under www.cinda.org. Now, we don't just bring you thought leaders from all over the world. We also have listeners from all over the world. So, good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you may be listening from today. And if you're new to the show, let me tell you what the show is about. Leadership Beyond Borders is about the impact globalization, digital transition, and the connected world is having on our organizations and what this impact is doing to the kind of leadership we need to drive long-term success in today's economy. In this series, we have talked about everything from business issues such as artificial intelligence, digital transitions, and data protection regulations to leadership issues such as gender balance and business values and ethics that may impact your organization or your your individual career. So please listen to us live, 3 p.m. specific time on Tuesdays. And if you miss us live, don't worry, we're on every major podcast platform from Apple to Google to Spotify to Stitcher. So just put in Leadership Beyond Borders. And I also invite you to connect with me, send me your thoughts and insights to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com and tell me what you'd like to hear on this show. So if you're in a leadership position or aspire to be in one, regardless if your business is interested national or local, make sure you join us each week and we'll make sure you take away something useful for either your business or yourself. Now on to today's show. In today's rapidly evolving business landscape, it's vital to rethink how we approach developing strategy. Traditional methods no longer suffice in a dynamic world fueled by technology advancements and shifting consumer demands. By embracing a fresh perspective, we unlock opportunities for innovation, growth, and success. Rethinking strategy development fosters adaptability and resilience and enabling us to navigate uncertainties and seize emerging trends. Our guest today has redesigned how organizations traditionally approach strategy. He encourages organizations to find new ways to understand their evolving needs, preferences, and markets. Our guest today is Alan Weiss, PhD, a consultant, speaker, and author of his new book, Sentient Strategy, How to Create Market-Dominating Strategies in Turbulent Economies. Through his consulting, Summit Consulting Group, he has worked with more than 500 leading organizations, including Merrick, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, the Federal Reserve, and the New York Times Corporation. He has published 60 books, many of which have been on the curricula of the top business schools. Moreover, he has served on boards of directors of the Trimony Repertory Company, Tony Award-winning New England Regional Theater, the Festival Ballet, chaired in Newport International Film Fest, and has done many other contributing society careers. So welcome, Alan. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah, thanks. So this, let's just start kind of uh, um, how th- the concept of sentient strategy, how did it first come to you? And you've written quite a few books. Um, what's What was so different about this one and what made you want to put this concept out and share it? Well, I wrote my first book on strategy around 1992. And, uh, you know, it was very much in line with what Peter Drucker had been uh, espousing. Drucker, you know, invented strategy over at uh, General Motors with Sloan. And I always admired him. I thought he had done great work. But then, many, many years later, just pre-pandemic, you know, four or five years ago, um, it occurred to me that spending weeks and sometimes even months trying to look out 10 years, for example, uh, is just an exercise in futility. And as I was putting my thoughts together for the book, the pandemic hit. And it became Mm -hmm. very clear, very clear to me that organizations in this tumultuous time shouldn't be looking more than a year or 15 months or so out, and they shouldn't be spending more than a day or two formulating strategy. In other words, the idea was to be nimble and agile and not to try to etch things in stone. And so I wrote Sentient Strategy. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, when the pandemic hit, I mean, uh, it, it kind of, I mean, you consult with a lot of companies. I mean, most of the strategies were kind of thrown out of, <laughs> thrown out into the garbage, right? Because everybody had to rethink. Um, what was your experience then? Well, you know, the boxer Mike Tyson had a great quote. He said, everybody has a strategy when they go into the ring until they're hitting the jaw. Then things <laughs> change dramatically. And, that, and that's what happened with the pandemic. And I realized that companies that were strong and individuals who were strong, I work with a lot of entrepreneurs as well, um, had those strengths exacerbated. They got even better. Companies were weak, entrepreneurs were weak, had those exacerbated, and they went out of business or struggled mightily. And I realized it was because you need a strategy that is not only relatively short-term, but can be changed readily. You know, people think it's horrible to change strategy, but the fact is that's how you deal with disruption and volatility and all the rest. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, let, it's taking a look at that, the definition, we, I mean, if we go back to the old definition of strategy, you know, with, um, you know, planning this, this attempting the successful growth by, you know, 10 years out. And, and you're saying in um, sentient strategy, you're saying just kind of look in short term. Um, is that the primary difference from your approach to kind of the traditional approaches? And are these traditional approaches really quite outdated now? Yes, they are. And my approaches are very much more sophisticated in that strategy, to my mind, was never about planning and execution and all this stuff. The process of strategy is to create a framework within which you make decisions that set the nature and direction of the business. And therefore, if a decision comes up that's within that framework, it's safe to make it. If a decision comes up, though, that's outside that framework, I mean, let's suppose that, oh, I don't know, Hertz Rent-A-Car decided to buy an ice cream company. It makes no sense. Uh, The second thing is I came up with two major axes, if you will, two major concerns. One concern is how aware of you of the environment in which you're operating. And the second is how conscious of you are you of the impact of your decisions And that's why I called it sentient strategy, which means self-awareness, because organizations have to be much more self-aware in an environment that's constantly changing. (laughs) Yeah, And in your book, and I I had the opportunity to read the book on the weekend, um, I'm going to come back to these two concepts, but you kind of talk about the chicken and the egg question, okay? Okay. you know the 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 strategy, long-term goals versus short-term effects. What what were you? What do you mean by that? I mean that um, it's silly uh, to look too far out because the variables that come into play uh, are too diffuse and too much in volume. I, I'll give you a quick example. When the pandemic hit, um, I called three bankers who were taking care of various uh, investment portfolios. And each one of them independently said the same thing. They said, do you have cash? I said, yeah, I have cash. They said, fine, do nothing. They said, if you didn't have cash, we'd cash something of you, but otherwise do nothing. And I said to each of the three of them, you sound terribly calm about this. Now, don't forget, this is the beginning of the pandemic. (laughs) And they all said the same thing. They said, we knew there was going to be a shock. We knew there was going to be volatility. It was inevitable. We just didn't know it would be in the form of a microbe. And so here were these excellent financial people who were prepared for a significant and traumatic change and and got through it just fine and advised their clients of that. Thank you very much. So you have to continue to look closer to home, even though conventionally we've always bragged about looking farther out and farther out. Don't forget, nobody predicted the Internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so when 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 you're talking about this, that that's a really good example, and um, I'm going to ask you if you have some other examples in a little bit. But I just want to I want to come back to how companies approach this because you know they're going into boardrooms and they're saying we're going to do a strategy, and then they're talking about you know vision, mission, um, and um, values. values. Okay, yes. and how does that fit in with all this? Well, that's overblown too. In other words. Um, value is, uh, this is heresy, right? But value is kind of silly. I mean, everybody says we need to operate um, ethically, we need to operate legally, we need to bring the greatest good to the greatest number, I mean, whatever it is. Um, Values are pretty much uh, given, you know? I mean, nobody ever said, I'm looking for a company whose values are to cheat and steal. And Mm -hmm. so values, they're generic, right? Now, when you get to vision and to mission, here's some more heresy. A mission is your raison d'etre. 
it's why you exist. You know, if you look at Merck, which you mentioned in my introduction, one yeah. of the great companies historically, Merck says we want to bring the greatest in scientific research against against the greatest areas of human health need. So that's their mission. That's why they're here. Their vision is a year from now, what will we look like that shows we've met this mission, this mission? And that's where companies get all tangled up, you know, uh, in their own shoelaces. And so that's how I separate them, which is different. But people pay attention because it makes a lot more sense. It makes a lot more sense, but then they they mix that up also with strategy. Okay, um, you know, mixing this this you know going into a, a boardroom and saying now we're going to talk about it. we're going to come out of this boardroom with this mission, with this vision, and with this strategy. And so, how do you get them to untangle that? Well, strategy is what enables you to to establish and to meet your raison d'être. Why you're here. That's what strategy is meant to do. Uh, And so it's got to be tied to a very specific reason you have for existing. You know, I mentioned Drucker before. One of the things he said that really struck me was that uh, organizations are not like cheetahs or tulips. They're not here merely to uh, propagate the species. They're here to make a contribution. And so what's the contribution you're going to make? That is your mission. You know, at at one point, Merck created a drug that that was a failure. Whatever it was designed for failed. Couldn't get approval, didn't work. But by accident, they found out that it cured African river blindness. And African river blindness at the time was the biggest cause of death in Africa. Nobody could afford this drug in Africa, and so they gave it away. And Mm -hmm. uh, in short order, African river blindness was cured. That's consistent with Merck's mission. Virtually no one has a mission to sit back and make money unless it's some pyramid scheme. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Um, We're going to take a short break. And um, when we come back, I want to kind of get into the nitty gritty on, on how you really work with companies to kind of to kind of start to to set a sentient uh, uh, strategy. And what are some of the components that you have that you have to set in place to make that work? And so we're going to take a short break now. And for our listeners, we are talking to Alan Weiss, PhD. He's a consultant, a speaker, and he's the author of his new book is called Sentient Strategy, How to Create Market-Dominating Strategies in Turbulent Economies. And through his consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, he has worked with more than 500 leading organizations, including Merck, Hewlett-Packard, GE, Mercedes-Benz, the Federal Reserve, and the New York Times Cooperation. He has published over 60 books, many of which are on the curricula of the top business schools. Now, if you'd like to learn more about him, you can all go to his website, which is www.alanvice.com. And he is also on social media under uh, under Million Dollar Consulting, as well as under Bentley GP Speed. And you can find him on LinkedIn under Alan Weiss, PhD. So please reach out to him. And this broadcast is also being brought to you by Cinda, which is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. They hold virtual pieces of training. They do conferences, research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. So they also have an entrepreneur platform that is free to entrepreneurs, which takes them from idea to exit. So if you'd like to learn more about that and you'd like to use the platform, please go to www.cinda.org and the platform is under Cinda for Startups. So please go and look that up. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Want to see what Voice America is up to behind the scenes? Follow us on TikTok at Voice America Talk Radio. Say It Skillfully is my radio show about being who you are and saying what you think needs to be said. This is your host, Molly Chang. I'll help you find the right words to tackle any challenging conversation you've been avoiding. Whether you're part of a small project team or leading a giant company, the more you accept that you're part of the problem, the faster you can be part of the solution. You'll learn how to achieve success on your terms and be happier, healthier, and more productive at work and in your life. Check out sayitskillfully.com for practical resources, including my 90-second videos, 
real life examples showing you how to speak up skillfully. I invite you to call in with your questions. Join me live every Tuesday, 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. And no, I'm cheering for you. Tune in each week for the Labenthal Report with hosts Dominic Tavella and Michael Hartzman. The Labenthal Report keeps you in tune with market conditions, investment opportunities, and outlooks based on the stories and headlines to keep you in touch with your financial success. Are you picking the right financial path? Find out by listening to The Labenthal Report live every Tuesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to Leadership Beyond Borders. Do you have a question or comment about our show? Please send an email to leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Again, that's leadershipbeyondborders at gmail.com. Now back to this week's program. Welcome back to Leadership Beyond Borders. I'm Kimberly Lewis, your host. And today we are talking with Alan Weiss, PhD. He's a consultant, a speaker, and he's the author of a new book, Sentient Strategy, How to Create Market-Dominating Strategies in Turbulent economies. And Alan has also worked with many organizations from Hewlett Packard to GE to Mercedes-Benz to the Federal Reserve and and many more. And so, Alan, before the break, um, we're just kind of talking about what this means and what the difference between, you know, sentient strategy and strategy is and and where does mission and vision fit into this whole, you know, kind of box here. But I want to I want to ask one question because in your book, um, you had a sentence that said you wrote strategic planning is an oxymoron. Okay. Can you explain that a little bit? Is it kind of what we've just been talking about? No, it's, it's worse. Uh, it's worse. Okay. It's worse. Yeah, what, what happens is uh, planning is a bottom up um, arrangement. And so salespeople, for example, are asked for a quota for next year. They're very careful about it because they want to be able to exceed it and get a bonus. It goes to their sales managers. They cut the quota still more because uh, they don't trust their sales force. They might be too optimistic. And by the time it gets up to the line, up to the executives, you got about 2 or 3% growth. Strategy, on the other hand, is top-down. And mm-hmm. the top people get together. I mean, executives exist for very few reasons, one of which is to set strategy. So you get together. You set what your growth should be under the current conditions uh, comp- uh, competition, technology, and so forth. And then you say to people, here's your accountability. And it gets down finally to the lower level people who have an accountability to meet the strategy. So strategic planning is ridiculous. It's a silly phrase. And the important thing is that if companies are to grow, then executives have to set reasonable and somewhat assertive goals, given a variety of factors in the environment, which we can talk about in a few minutes, and not have their hands tied to, tied behind their backs by people below them trying to project very modest increases. Mm-hmm. Okay, that makes that that makes a lot of sense. So let, let's talk about the you know setting those projections. Um, you know what what are you know why do p- people miss it? I mean, especially like miss their markets or miss their projections. You know how how do we start to get that right? Well, now you're on execution, and the fact yeah. is, sentient strategy focuses on accountability more than mm-hmm. any other approach to strategy. And so as it cascades down from, let's say, a dozen people who are setting it for a given organization, everybody gets accountability in their jobs and in their evaluations to meet the objectives that will lead to the successful implementation of the strategy. So, you know, right now, uh, by and large, no executive meets with a subordinate and says, um, you had a, you had a, a great year. Uh, you made a lot of money. However, you didn't make progress toward our strategic goals, so I'm not going to give you your full bonus. That's virtually mm-hmm. never a conversation. Mm-hmm. And in, in setting a strategy, what we do is we have a, a conversation about progress toward strategic goals every single time. Mm-hmm. Okay. So let's let's kind of dig into that. When you're going into a company and you're you're talking with the company on trying to 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 change the way they traditionally are setting strategy and and bring them into the concept of sentient strategy what what's one of the first things you do well the first thing i do is we take a look at a dozen or so strategic factors and we say which two or three of these factors 
are most likely going to propel you toward the vision that indicates your raison d'etre is being met, your mission is being met. And a lot of people make an early mistake that uh, it's all about revenue and profit. And, and the fact is, very few organizations are driven by profit. The old conglomerates were, like Gulf and Western and ITT, but GE was about the last one, and GE right now is almost out of business. You know, the three separate yeah. companies, $65 billion in debt, it's a mess. And so um, we're looking at, cycle, at um, strategic factors that might include brand power, it might include uh, people, it might include... Uh, relationships overseas, and so forth and so on. And then we do an interesting thing. We try to understand which of these are by far the most important, so we can focus on them, by a, a litmus test I created. And the litmus test looks at factors like disruption, volatility, speed, innovation. And so I've taken volatility and disruption, which everybody talks about. Sounds It'd be a good name for a law firm, you know, volatility. <laughs> uh, but what I've done is I've turned it into an offensive weapon. And so instead of defending and being worried about it, my question is how you create it. And if you look at the great companies, if you look at Amazon, if you look at FedEx, you know, if you look at Dyson and so forth, they were disruptive in their marketplaces. Uh, in the 90s, I disrupted uh, consulting by introducing value-based fees to consultants and pointed out that hourly fees were unethical and wrong. And today I've got the strongest independent consulting brand in the world because I disrupted the profession. Mm-hmm. Okay. So when, when you're doing this and you're looking at the, these things that propel them forward, so um, as you said, people go in and they look at revenue, they, they, they're they doing planning, you know, they're, um, but you're looking at brand, people, relations, you know, what these things make the most impact. So how, how do you then take that um, and develop that into a strategy that can actually help propel the company forward. So if, let's just use one example there, whether it's brand, people, or relations. All right. And, and don't forget there are others like technology right. and so forth. But let, right. let's, let's take brand. Um, you take your brand and you say to yourself, will this brand as it currently exists help us and propel us to meeting our vision and justifying our raison d'etre? And mm -hmm. if it does then how do we sustain it? However, a second possibility is our brand is insufficient right now, and so we have to improve it. And so now the question is, how do we improve the brand and who's responsible? But there's a third option, and that is the brand is no longer effective, and so we have to replace it. And now the question is, how do we do that? Now, you could ask those same questions about people or technology or customer relationships or anything else. So to make this transition, you ask yourself, do I sustain something that can get us to this new future, or do I improve something that needs improvement to get it there, or do I jettison something and replace it altogether? Mm -hmm. Okay. So could you uh, – I mean, you work with a lot of companies. Um, so this is how we're implementing this this new approach to strategy. Could you – do you have an example of um, a company, if you can name it or they, you don't have to name it, or just that that where they took this path and it had a significant impact? Well, yeah, so I can't, obviously I can't name them, but I will of say course that, not. Yeah. Uh, that um, private sector, public sector, uh, academia, uh, and so forth, nonprofits, all can use this approach. It's a process approach, and they can all use it. Uh, but to give you an example, uh, uh, I had an organization that had 54 board members, and they said, how are you going to arrange that? And I said, I'm not. Uh, there's no way you said strategy with 54 people in the room. It's absolutely insane. They said, well, we have to represent, though, on the board all all types of people in our very, very diverse organization. I said, fair enough, but I want you to pick 12 of them, make them your executive committee, and we'll deal with that. And they said, which 12? And I said, any 12. I don't really care. But pick 12 people, and they'll be the executive committee. So they did that somehow. And with those 12 people, uh, in this particular organization's profession, they were the only organization, only profession in the, in the prior 10 years that suffered a decrease uh, in their members' fees and their members' income. And so we took a look at that from the top, and we realized that the organization's brand and people belonging to the organization was insufficient. And they didn't have to jettison it, but going back to what I just said, they had to improve the brand so that people had more of a respect for people who belonged to this organization, because of that half the potential members in the country who could belong to it, but another half never belonged to it. 
And we use that not only to sort of uh, leapfrog, to, to bolster uh, the members in this organization who were paying dues, but we also use it to attract a hell of a lot more members once they found that there was a brand change that made potential customers much more likely to want to use people who belong to it. So that's an example of what we can do. Mm-hmm. And and uh, talking about fifty four board members, that's a lot. Um, when when you're going through this uh, this process with the companies, uh, and they're used to working a different way, are you seeing um, a, a difference in the the way these particular members, let's say, say it's the twelve, um, are collaborating together and and trying to you know, does it encourage collaboration to try to reach this this method? Yeah, it, it encourages what I call um, a healthy disagreement. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it encourages people to speak out when they have differences of opinion, which is very common at that level. However, however, it requires them to back up their opinion with empirical evidence, with facts. And so consequently, they can't say, well, that will never work. You say, what's your evidence that will never work? Has it ever worked? Has anybody ever done this? And we get into these discussions. And the key thing here is that the CEO has a duality, two roles. One is uh, to exemplify his or her willingness to go forward with this kind of process so everybody else sees it as something they want to do. But secondly, uh, uh, since I or any outside consultant has accountability but not authority, they Mm -hmm. have to impose their authority so that things don't go off off the track and people start arguing about politics and what happened last year and so forth. I'll say one other thing that I think is important, I think you'll appreciate. The, one of the keys to this process is, at the outset I put up a, an easel sheet on the wall and I call it the critical issues list. And I tell people, if they come up with something that they fear might obstruct the strategy or has to be reconciled, let's not stop there to try to do that. We'll put it on the critical issues list and we'll worry about it later. We'll sign accountability later because too many strategic processes are held up when um, uh, you have people saying, well, our, our compensation system uh, can never accommodate this. And so what you have to say is fine. Let's put up examining the compensation system. And we'll get to it later. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of that's kind of the blockers that that happen um, in the beginning here. Um, that that's interesting. You put, you, you know, you, I'm sure you get a lot of those kind of things. I mean, what, what do you see probably, uh, when you're starting to work this, um, obviously this takes a lot of buy-in from that CEO or that leader. Okay. And, um, where, where do you see probably the biggest reluctance when they start to move in this direction and new direction from these leaders? Um, yeah, the pushback. Do you, do you get pushback from it? We, well, you have to sell the leader first. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to sell the leader on the process and its utility and show how it will make a difference. So the leader has to be the exemplar of going forward with this. I will say that uh, I think it encourages a sort of an openness and a, and a candor that they don't normally have. And um, suddenly they sit back and start realizing that it's not just setting strategy, it's accepting the accountability. Mm-hmm. For, because too often, as you know, Kimberly, you have a, a strategy sits and gathers dust on a, either a physical shelf or a computer desk file, and nobody ever looks at it again. This becomes mm-hmm. an organic document. This becomes something they need to use on a week-by-week basis. Mm-hmm. And you said in the beginning that you're revisiting that, okay? So you're setting that, you're setting that strategy. Let's say everybody's getting together in the beginning of the year in January. How how often do you come back to that to to make sure that it's it's still going in the right direction and and the implementation is happening and the the accountability is taking or you might have to change it, okay? How how often does that happen? Well, I know you have a global audience, so let me give you a global answer. Uh, I've okay. certified uh, about 70 people, seven zero people around the world, it, either inside organizations or as consultants outside, to implement sending strategy. And um, what they found is that you can do this in a couple of days. Uh, sometimes it's one long day, but in two days, you can do it remotely via Zoom or something like that. But then once you do that, the accountabilities that people take on have to be monitored on a regular basis. And I advise at first one week or two weeks at maximum, and then maybe monthly, and then maybe the facilitator uh, is back once a month to make sure that things are still on track. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So we're gonna we're gonna take another break soon. And when we come back, I want to I want to address um, what you have in your book on return to normal instead of the new normal, and I want to talk a little bit about um, how this strategy affects the decision making process, which you touched on in the beginning. And for our listeners, we are talking today with Alan Weiss, CPHD. He's a consultant, speaker, and author of his new book, Sentient Strategies, How to Create Market-Dominating Strategies and Turbulent Times. And you can find Alan on his website under www.alanvice, and that is A-L-A-N, and Vice is W-E-I-S-S. And so alanvice.com, and you can learn about him. He's also the author of over 60 books, and the books can be found on Amazon. So please reach out to Alan. And this broadcast is also brought to you by Cinda. And Cinda is one of Europe's fastest-growing nonprofit digital marketing and local search associations. They hold virtual trainings, conferences, do market research, and legislative white papers focused on digital. They also have an e-learning platform for entrepreneurs and startups that takes entrepreneurs and startups from idea to exit. And all of that is at no cost for the entrepreneur. And it is uh, sponsored with the inquiry with the European Union. So please go to www.cinda.org for more information on that. And with that, we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. What's holding your business back from long-term growth? How can you accelerate the changes needed to build an adaptable platform to support transformative change? How are others optimizing business processes and systems to ensure timely decision-making through the use of data? Learn how you can minimize disruption and maximize results. Take a break with Rising, our weekly expert panel, and our host, Bonnie D. Graham, to learn how others are getting smart with technology and creating their next-gen ERP. Join us on Rising Evolution, the future-proofed enterprise, presented by Rising, a Wipro company, on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program to discover exactly what to consider with your money now in light of the current economic and investing environment. Host Dennis Tubergen, a four-time best-selling author and consultant to the financial industry, analyzes the current investing climate and interviews some of the brightest minds on the planet in the fields of investing, economics, and finance. Weekly episodes of the Retirement Lifestyle Advocates radio program available at 12 p.m. Pacific time on the Voice America Business Channel. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. listening to leadership beyond borders do you have a question or comment about our show please send an email to leadership beyond borders at gmail.com again that's leadership beyond borders at gmail.com now back to this week's program welcome back to leadership beyond borders i'm kimberly lewis your host and today we're talking with alan weiss and he's a consultant a speaker and the author of a new book that's just came out sentient strategy how to create market dominating strategies in turbulent economies. And through his consulting firm, Summit Consulting Group, he has worked with more than 500 leading organizations um, from Baird to Hewitt-Packard to GE to Mercedes-Benz, Federal Reserve, New York Times. And he has published over 60 books, many of which are in the curriculum of top business universities. So, We've been we've kind of been dissecting this, you know, how you go about the sentient strategy. And I, um, Alana, wanted to come back to something that you said in the beginning on how it impacts the decision making. And you talked about, you know, how people become aware of their environment and how they must have to become aware of the decisions they make. So, what kind of impact does this process have on? the decision-making process? Well, my experience is that people tend to default to how much money we're going to make uh, next year or the year after 
uh, revenues, market growth, uh, profits, and so forth. But instead, um, this drives them to think about what Drucker referred to as the contribution. He wasn't talking about, when he talked contribution to the environment, he wasn't talking about green. He was talking about communities. He was talking about uh, what kind of corporate citizen you are. And I think, if, you know, it, ironically, accidentally, wasn't deliberate. It came out at the same time as the social justice movement really got a lot of traction. And uh, to what extent are we being uh, fair and, and uh, providing equal opportunity and treating our customers decently and treating our employees and our suppliers decently? And so it forces you to look at this, this concept of the impact of your actions and also on the environment in which you're operating. I mean, let's face it, the environment in which we're operating today is substantially different from five years ago. And there's no reason to think it won't be substantially different 18 months from now as people continue to use chat GPT and artificial intelligence uh, and so forth and so on. And if you take a look today, by the way, just to give you a strategic factor, supply chains, which used to be global, have shrunk to become regional to lessen mm -hmm. dependence on foreign countries. And now they're shrinking to be actually local. So that's an example of how environments can change, forcing changes in strategy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And becoming aware of your environment, um, you see you see a lot of companies um, struggling when they really try to identify. You know, we talked about identifying what could impact this propel you forward and companies struggling on that and struggling on identifying their they're actually their markets as far as their customers. OK, um, with this changing environment, you know, how do you kind of stay flexible and and in trying to you know, identify those moving markets. I mean, the customer today, I know as a consumer, I'm completely different today than I was pre-pandemic or even a year ago. Um, it's kind of like working with a moving target. How do you keep up with that? Well, that's why I said that things like disruption and volatility and turmoil have to be turned into aggressive weapons. Uh, and mm -hmm. you can't just sit in a foxhole and protect yourself from them. Uh, and so when you take a look, uh, the key is if you want to make it as simple as possible, you need to talk about what and not how. Too many strategies are derailed. And this is why I have that critical issues list. Yeah. Because somebody comes up with an idea and then somebody else says, well, how will we do that? We don't have the resources. We don't have the people. We don't have the reputation. And the, and the thing gets just killed. What you have to look at is what do we want to look like in a year? And then you can worry working backwards about how you get there. When I, when I coach executives, uh, I ask an interesting question. I say to them, who do you want to be in a year? And 95% of them tell me what it is they want to be doing. But mm -hmm. I say to them, that's not the question. Who do you want to be? How do you want people to regard you? It's a different way of looking at life, and it's a different way of looking at your business. Mm -hmm. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And um, as you're doing that, okay, and you're talking about disruption and um, – you know, innovation, and you you work with a lot. You said in the beginning you work with a lot of entrepreneurs and stuff. Um, innovation just it's playing such a big role in everything we do today. Um, but big companies struggle with that sometimes. So you know, how do you help these larger companies become a little bit more in, innovative when they're trying to, you know, approach where they want to be in one year. Well, I'm really glad you asked that because it's really an important part of strategy. People don't realize there are three kinds of innovation. One kind of innovation is opportunistic. And so when Dunkin' Donuts here, the coffee chain, uh, they had a, a, an outlet here, it lost power and it couldn't make coffee on this particular day. And a guy drives in the lot with one of these canteen trucks, which service, you know, plants. And in 45 minutes, he sold out because people were still coming there to get coffee. There was a parking lot and he sold out in 45 minutes. Now, you can't do that every day, but that's opportunism. The second kind of innovation is conformist innovation. And that means you take a look at something that's working pretty well or maybe so-so, and you make it better. And an ex you know a dramatic example of that is Uber. Uber is a taxi service. There have been taxis around since the 1800s. Mm -hmm. but the fact is Uber incorporated modern technology and bonded drivers and so forth and so on. Um, and they've provided an experience now where you can schedule them in advance you know, in New York City, the, maybe the busiest city in the world in a lot of regards, uh, Uber shows up during a thunderstorm exactly where they promised to be in advance. Mm -hmm. Then you have nonconformist innovation. And nonconformist innovation is best described as Amazon. You know, Amazon started out as a bookseller. 
And now you can buy, you know, fruits and tires and all kinds of things there. And they're going to drop products by drones and so on. They bought Whole Foods. Now, if you look at these three kinds of, organ- of innovation, I would say to a client, how are you doing with these? But then I'll make a point, which is this. Pragmatically, the most effective kind of innovation is conformist innovation, looking at things that you know work and you know people want, but making them still better and better and better. And that's what too many organizations don't look at because they don't ask the right people. And the people you have to ask are your frontline people. You don't mm-hmm. ask a bank vice president. You ask a teller. You don't ask a sales executive. You ask the salesperson. Yeah, and I, I like the Uber example because it's not just um, – it's you can also tell where they are and when they'll be there. So, you know, right. I mean, it's much, right. much better than the taxi services. And um, that kind of takes me to, you know, um, this whole change, this in innovation. And in your book, um, you say uh, that you've kind of steered away from return to normal and new normal, okay? Um because I don't even know what normal is, to be honest with you, because I think it's changing so often. Why, why do you put some emphasis on that? Well, I actually trademarked a term called no normal. And I own, <laughs> And the reason is this. People sitting around here today waiting for a return to normal are going to be sitting there a long time. That's never <laughs> going to happen. There are too many things that have changed. You know, People who are looking for a new normal fail to realize that normal means average. Normal means typical. Do you really want to go to a place that's typical and average? That's not how organizations succeed. And so you have to be agile. You have to be light on your feet, as I've talked about several times, because things are changing every single day. Things are changing geopolitically. They're changing technologically. They're changing in terms of social moray and so forth and so on. And so you have to be able to understand the environment in which you're operating and the impact of the decisions you're making. And you have to be willing to change them as appropriate. Mm-hmm. And let's talk about one of those things that are changing. Okay, and you, um, um, when you're looking at the workforce, okay, so we're talking about strategy, but you have a changing workforce also. Um, you know, they we had what was called the the the, the great resignation. Um, Generation Z is is looking at things quite differently than um, you know Generation X or I generation did as far as jobs are concerned. Um, what what are your thoughts on this thing that's changing because I, it, for example, the great resignation and, and how the actual the workforce is changing. Well, I call the great resignation an existential jailbreak. Uh, <laughs> the problem there is people were tired of being treated terribly, you know, and people don't leave organizations, they leave bosses. The mm-hmm. literature on this has been the same for 20 years. People are motivated by the ability to use as many talents as they have on the job and be recognized for it. They're not motivated by money. I mean, if you give an unhappy employee more money, you have mm-hmm. a wealthier unhappy employee, right? Right. So that's number one. As, as time, as, in terms of quietly quitting, I came up with, how about quietly firing? You know, somebody shows up and you say, well, your, your desk has been moved to that freight elevator. Just go in there and hit down. You know? So <laughs> uh, I think you have to understand that a lot of this is just uh, uh, normative pressure and media stuff. You know, the um, uh, unemployment's at record lows. Mm. And, uh, even with pre-pandemic, record lows. And all these people aren't out of the workforce. They're not sleeping on their parents' couches and so forth. And, and so uh, the fact is, if you give people an effective work environment where they can use their talents and be recognized for them and rewarded accordingly, not only are they going to stay, they're going to be the best ambassadors to recruit new talent. And I think strategically, one of the great changes that's going to be is that in the future, organizations will have very different kinds of people. I have executives who set strategy. They'll have some managers who oversee sort of permanent staff who are always useful. Then they'll have talent wranglers who take people on and let them go again only so that they can work on a certain project. And they'll mm-hmm. carry their benefits on their back like a turtle from place to place. I think we're going to see a lot of that happening. And I'll tell you one more thing. People ask me, what's the biggest need in leadership today? I'll tell you what the biggest lead is. Uh, biggest need is people do not know how to lead and manage and motivate uh, remote workforces. They're struggling. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're struggling like crazy with that. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, uh, we see that I'm in Europe and I see that in Europe also. And it's, I think it's worldwide and the, the workforces are more worldwide okay, um, today. So, I mean, how, what do you think we have to do to, to get better leadership to to well, how can leaders step up and learn to manage these um, workforces better? Well, the first thing is we have to do away with the 40 hour myth. And that is right. that. Uh, people in offices full-time never had a 40-hour productive work week. Nobody works 40 hours in a work week. <laughs> so, stop, so stop expecting it from people who are sitting home in their pajama bottoms, uh, you know, looking at a guitar they want to play, whatever it is. So satisfy yourself with a 20-hour highly productive work week. Second, give people results that you expect them to fulfill and not tasks. Mm-hmm. You can manage results. You know, where are you? Did you accomplish this? But tasks, you know, the, what are you going to ask? How many calls did you make today? Mm-hmm. So, so that's number one. Number two is, you know, I, write a, I wrote a book called Three Score and More. And in there I maintain that since we're not replacing ourselves, you know, morbidity is ahead of fertility in the United States and much of the West, Europe too. Mm-hmm. We're not replacing ourselves. In the United States, we need a more intelligent immigration policy. Now, there's an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we need to, we're a nation of immigrants, but we need to be, go about it much more selectively so we have both blue collar and white collar workers we need. Number two is we need to use artificial intelligence correctly and intelligently so that I can pick up some of the slack. But the third thing is, in terms of three score and more, I've never heard anyone call a 26 year old wise. We can't throw people out at 65. First mm-hmm. of all, security system, the numbers don't work anymore. And secondly, we need these people's contributions. So if you want to retire from a given line of work, fine, but you can't retire from contributing to society. And organizations have to recognize that some of these people they can access on a part-time basis, giving them the wisdom they need. But those will be the three sources for organizations to succeed in the future with these disparate kind of um, of uh, workers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, good point. And um, I, I know here in Europe, we're, we're de- making some movements in, in Germany towards re- rehiring like over 65 and getting people in um, into companies a little bit more aggressively. And I know they do that in Scandinavia. So, um, so well, we're getting... Excuse me for interrupting, but as you and I are talking here today, the German economy is at a complete standstill. And right, so they need, exactly. they need to do something, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's true. So um, we're getting towards the end of the show, and I just want to ask one more question from your book and then kind of wrap up for our audience. Um, You talk about the success trap uh, in your book. What is that exactly? The success trap comes when you're successful and you simply accept that success uh, and you're on a plateau. You stop growing and improving. Uh, and that plateau, because of the laws of entropy, eventually erodes. You know, I've never seen anyone coast uphill. You only coast mm-hmm. downhill. So what happens mm-hmm. is, as you become successful, sort of an S-curve going up, uh, you have to leap to a new S-curve. You know, IBM stands for International Business Machine. But they're not making business machines. They're not making punch cards anymore. They're not making software. IBM's main profit comes from consulting. And so they recognized the fact they were in the information exchange business and not the machinery business. Uh, Dyson, who I mentioned, is not in the vacuum cleaner business. They're in the airflow business, and they make the, probably the best hand dryers and, and hair dryers uh, anywhere. So uh, you have to understand what kind of business you're in. Otherwise, you become stagnant, and you think, well, I'm on a plateau, but it's a pretty high plateau. I've got news for you. It's not going to last forever. Yeah. Okay. Good. So um, with that said, uh, for our listeners, and we have a a very wide audience here and mostly in the management level and um, executive level, any wise words on what leaders, our leaders out there, should look out for or prepare themselves or do for to to be more successful as we live in this turbulent economy and and everything is changing well first of all ignore most leadership advice you know (laughs) charts and diagrams put out by human resources and you know it would take you uh, three hours just to go through the chart to decide how to make a decision so ignore all that stuff the second thing is you know what people basically want what employees basically want is they want somebody who is consistent they treat situations the same. They want somebody who is resilient. They bounce back from errors and problems and they bounce forward because nobody's perfect. And the third thing is 
they have great confidence. And so you're in this fog, you're in this neutral zone, you know, and people, people always think that the future looks great and the present is great, but what they're afraid of is the journey. And mm. the leader has to tell them, I have a light, follow me. Mm-hmm. Okay, great, great last advice, Alan. So thank you so much for being with us and discussing your book today. And our, for our listeners, we've been talking to Alan Weiss, and he's a PhD, a consultant speaker, and the author of his new book, and he has over 60 books that he's written, but his new book is Sentient Strategy, How to Create Market-Dominating Strategies in Turbulent Economies. And he has a consulting firm called a Summit Consulting Group, and he has worked with more than 500 leading organizations from Hewlett Packard to GE to Mercedes and many more. And his books are also used as curricula at many of the top business schools. So if you'd like to reach out to Alan, please go to www.alanweiss.com and that's A L A N and then W E I S S. Dot com, alanweiss.com and reach out to him and I'm sure he'd be happy to hear from you and check out his website and also check out his book. It is available on Amazon. And we've also been brought to you by Cinda and Cinda is one of Europe's fastest growing nonprofit digital marketing and local circus associations. They hold virtual trainings, conferences, market research and they have white papers on digital. They also have an e-learning platform for entrepreneurs and founders and startups, and it's free. Um, and you can go to www.cinda.org and uh, access the e-learning comp- uh, platform under Cinda for Startups. They also have conferences, and their next conference is going to be held May 12th to 15th in Berlin, Germany. So please go to www.cinda.org and check them out. And again, Alan, thank you so much for taking the time and sharing your insights with us. Kimberly, thanks for the good questions. I had a, pl- I had a, I had a ball. It was great. Yeah, great. Good. Okay. Thank you so much. And maybe we'll run into each other sometime in, in Rhode Island. <laughs> so, okay. That's good. Okay. You take care. And thank you, listeners. And uh, tune in again next week. And have a good week. Bye. Thank you for joining us on Leadership Beyond Borders. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 3 p.m. U.S. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Kimberly J. Lewis, on the Voice America Business Channel. Have a great week.